This is The Shift Podcast. The Shift Daily Podcast today, believe it or not, 2020s have not been so terrible in the big picture of things. If we go backwards in time, about 1,500 years-ish, we learn from Michael McCormick, professor of medieval history, Harvard University, that could be where the worst years in human history started. We're talking dark for 18 months and continuing after that with pandemics and more. 536 AD was quite terrible and started about a seven-year run of some really bad years in human history. Steve Stebbing joins us here on the Shift Daily Podcast about what the hell should we watch this weekend. It's all on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. Over the last couple of years, safe to say, most of us have probably had some of the most challenging of the years. 2020 started out pretty well. Well, didn't end very well. 2021 was hopeful, but really not great. And 2022 started out with a whole lot of hope. And then, of course, we start to throw in inflation and recessions and wars and all those things. But that's just three years. I mean, this planet's been around for a long time, man. Human civilization has been around for a long time. My own study of my own family name took me back to some really not great times in European history, that's for sure. My family name goes back to uh, as far as 1000 AD, where uh, the Vikings, essentially, the, the Normans uh, invaded France. Like, we're talking some of the ugliest of all the things. So when you go looking for your history, sometimes you find some nuggets of not so awesome. Now, history of humans is changing, and not because that the storyline has changed, but the science and the technology around discovering what that is, uh, is changing too. We're getting better at it. Michael McCormick joins us here. It's The Shift. And Michael is, this is Michael's jam. I can tell you this. He gets very excited about it. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. Michael, we sort of talked about this. The last couple of years, terrible. Science has changed so much. So I become so much more accurate in researching all of these history things that we've gone through for as far back as we can reach. It is quite possible that we can start to break down, at least in our own opinion, the worst year in the history of humans. And it's not really the last couple of years. Things were a lot uglier long ago. How are we doing here? And how is uh, how's your world and history and technology? Uh, thank you, Shane. It's great to be with you and with your listeners. Uh, great to be here. So the key thing is that, yes, we need benchmarks uh, in the past to be able to see how we're doing today. And we need those benchmarks, whether we're talking about disease or we're talking about climate change or we're talking about inflation or increasing prices and so forth. And one of the most important things for all of us to know is that this is not the first time the human race has been here. Um, and the places that I study, I work on the archaeology, the history and the science of the fall of the Roman Empire, um, shows us some pretty, pretty tough times compared to what we're living through. And one of the prime candidates is the year 536 of our era. Um, this was something that passed almost unnoticed among professional historians. This wasn't the Hewitts we... family fault, right? Just you, <laughs> you can let the Hewitts off the hook for this one? Yeah, we can let the Hewitts definitely off the hook for this one. Thank you. Um, it turns out that um, we didn't know what this was until 2015. Um, and as I said, the historians passed on it lightly because there's half a dozen eyewitnesses scattered all across the Roman Empire from Italy to Mesopotamia who mentioned something really weird. And uh, we just focused on other things because 
who ever heard of such a thing? And what they said was the sun stopped shining for between 12 and 18 months. Wow. And it got really bad. Food production plummeted. Uh, weird things happened. Nothing followed the rules uh, that they had established through ancient science. And uh, this was simply just kind of a weird observation uh, that no one paid attention to until a couple of NASA scientists in the late 80s, early 90s began analyzing ancient records and proposed that maybe this was a huge volcanic event. Um, it was picked up by a couple, uh, by a wonderful uh, dendrochronologist at Queen's University, now emeritus, Mike Bailey in, in, um, in um, uh, Ulster and uh, uh, Belfast and uh, uh, by a science journalist, David Keyes. And they both each wrote kind of sensationalist books about what happened. Uh, coming to different ideas. In 2015, we learned definitively that it happened and that it was a volcano. Mm. Uh, and this is about 500 AD, you're talking ish. 536 AD, wow. 536 CE. So 1500 years ago. Um, and um, we the there's debate about what, what the volcano was. Maybe it was more than one, uh, but it was definitely a volcano. Um, and it affected a, a study just published last year shows the Northern Hemisphere, the average summer temperature dropped basically overnight in Western Europe by about two degrees Celsius hmm. um, and stayed that's the average. So the ups and the extremes are much more are much bigger than that for the summer. So just imagine summer temperature drops by two degrees Celsius. That might find feel good right now. But when you saw what it took to get the, the um, to get down to two as an average, that would not be so pleasant. Oh. So we now have scientific confirmation that this happened. And we are we that is to say, historians, archaeologists, scientists are looking for its effects across the globe. This is amazing. OK, so now new information says 536, quite possibly in recent memory, could be the worst year of history because the world went dark. I the mean, so dark. that would be um, and cold and cold. So that would be impactful everywhere. Right. 536. Northern Hemisphere. But 536 would be I mean, you're not I mean, you're probably burning wood there's fire i'm assuming like controlled fire in 536 yeah mostly wood mostly wood heating yeah in, in uh western europe yeah and yes. charcoal and wood heating yep. yeah so then you're that's what that's basically what everyone's huddled around so that you we talked about migrating and humans always migrating i mean i would imagine when things get colder a lot of that stuff the movement slows down everything slows down what's the impact of the world going well northern hemisphere going dark for a year and a half so it really has a bad effect on plants so crop failures so we see famines and um, we see the death of grasses. So uh, pastoralist people start migrating, looking for grass for their 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 uh, for their animals. Um, the Roman Empire was prepared and had storage and was able to last it out um, for the big cities and the capital uh, for the capital and probably for the army. But a lot of places didn't have access to those Roman resources and they probably faced a much harder time. But the worst of it is that 536 was only the beginning. Um, you have this extraordinary climate event, uh, which affects people's daily lives, their food, causes migrations, and so forth. But it appears, it, well, in fact, it certainly triggered a new, a recently defined Little Ice Age huh. that began in the spring of 536 and where your ancestors came from in Britain and France lasted until about 660 and until about 680 in Central Asia. That's a long so, time. 
that's a very long time for to have the kind of temperature drops that um, I've mentioned. So that led to very wide scale. Likely, this is all being studied, and you must be one must be very careful and precise and accurate as to what is demonstrated, what is probable, what is possible, mm. and what is actually demonstrated is limited. But it has become clear that the this period of great migrations, when the Slavs migrated south uh, into the rest of Europe, when Turkic tribes started crossing all of Asia to come to Europe and to invade and to settle there, um, these migrations probably are in some way connected with the widespread food disruptions that accompany the late antique Little Ice Age. That was defined in 2016 by my friend and colleague at Cambridge University, Ulf Bündgen, in a in a well cited paper in Nature um, in, in one of the Nature portfolio paper um, journals, so that was the beginning. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Okay, um, so this is such a blind spot for me, Michael. Like, I just I'm going to just acknowledge that I'm so surprised that this kind of thing has happened only 1500 years ago. I mean, we talk about dinosaurs and ice ages, right? Like this is this one-time right. thing that happened. And we always talk about, you know, the old, um, you know, climate warming and all those, the, the language that was used around that was so inaccurate because it wasn't about that. Um, it, climate change, which is always changing. The question is, is it changing in the right direction that it works for us? And, uh, how and, and how fast, right? The trends. And so this is great evidence to go back and say, hey, by the way, the climate is going to do what the climate's going to do in some ways. Are we just making it worse? And I think that conversation just gets so exciting when we talk about it that way, as opposed to some morality conversation. But this is a good reminder that fifteen, only 1,500 years ago, I shared with you that my family name history goes back pretty close to that area. So this doesn't feel like it's so long ago. How real is all of this on the impact of who we are today? I mean, it would affect our family lineage. Uh, we could probably direct start to figure that stuff out. You're absolutely right. And uh, with as, as new facts, as new established uh, data appears from both scientific, archaeological, and even historical analysis, we're going to be able to plot with greater precision the impact over time and space of these changes, whether it's in the crop regime, whether it's in how high up in altitude people settled or, or, or moved. But there's worse to come, I'm afraid, Shane. Okay. Because five years after this event began, and it lasted, according to some eyewitnesses, 18 months, so deep into 537 and maybe beyond, there appeared in the second great commercial port of Egypt an, a, a new disease which launched a pandemic, the pandemic of Justinian that begins in late 541 in the Egyptian Delta and spreads from there across the Roman Empire and the provinces that had been conquered by the barbarians. And this disease, we now know from the irrefutable evidence of the ancient DNA um, that was identified from victims uh, of, the, in, uh, of the pandemic, was bubonic plague, Yersinia pectus. Hmm. Wow. Um, it's a disease of rats. Uh, and rats by then had colonized the entire Roman space and beyond, being transported by these ships that brought the, the grain of food to uh, the of life yeah. uh, to the Roman cities, also brought them rats and ultimately would bring them bubonic death. 
Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Now, I didn't think of grains. I thought of potatoes because potatoes have always been, I don't even know how far back in history they go, but I, they've always been such a century in, in the West. They're, is a, that... they're a, yes, they're, a, they're an American uh, uh, product, an American okay. plant. And only began to be grown for food in Europe in the later 18th century. Yeah. Okay. So great. So that, that's a great example. So for me, it occurred as potatoes, uh, grain, because that's what I always. Uh, I know most of my recent study that I've done recreationally has been around um, England, Ireland, famines, and all those things. So that kind of connects. Now that makes sense. So okay. So grains is a better example that, and that's what I was thinking when I thought potatoes. But grains is a more accurate example. Is that when people moved, the food needed to move where the plants were grown would have changed because the environment was changing. And then not only that, the food himself needed to move along either with the people or separate of the people that were migrating to either stay warm or uh, have a life, have sustenance and all those things. So you can feel that just in that, this massive shift that happens. And then there you go, everybody gets sick. So think about this. This uh, the eyewitnesses claim that it came to the capital of Constantinople, capital of the Roman Empire, in those centuries, modern day Istanbul, um, and it came in the spring of 542, just when the grain ships start arriving, when 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 maritime traffic picks up again, because there was no almost no sailing in the Mediterranean because they had no compass, they had no way to see where they were going in storms. Um, during the winter months, so just when shipping picks up, boom, it hits the capital. Um, eyewitnesses claim that deaths were reaching 10,000 a day. Wow. Um, and this went on for into 543. Okay. Um, and it spread across the entire Roman Empire and far beyond, uh, according to the written evidence. And we now have for the first time since 2013 and 2016, and then again, a, 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 a third paper published in 2019, ancient DNA evidence of the, of the genome of the bacterium Yersinia pestis in the teeth of the people who died from it. No way. Yes, and that's and that is very powerful new evidence, which is just beginning to help us see the extent of this pandemic, of the of different waves of this pandemic. Because if you think 536 was bad and you think 541, 542 is bad, there's worse news. Uh, our pandemic's been going on for three years. The Justinianic pandemic, according to historical witnesses, uh, lasted until about 750. Oh, so, God. Because I was uh, going to say, wow, years. seven years, that's um, that's a long time. And then now you're looking at, you know, 200 plus years of people unable to escape this this illness. Yes, yes, absolutely. And um, in terms of radiocarbon dated individuals with Yersinia pestis in their remains, we have them from France already from the seventh, well, deep into the seventh century, so deep into the 600s. So, so far, the molecular evidence is confirming the uh, historical record on this score. We don't know how far it reaches. We don't know how many times it comes. There may have been parts of the world that were less of the, even of the Greco-Roman world that were less affected by this than mm -hmm. others. There may have been phases in which only yeah. one part of the Greco-Roman world was affected and others not. Yeah, but resurgence here and spikes and all those things, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. But we are going to know because those poor people are still there with in their burial and we can recover the evidence of their death from these wonderful procedures in ancient DNA 
that we're trying to do at the Harvard Max Planck Research Center for Archaeoscience. It's a joint operation between the Science of the Human Past at Harvard and the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, which has some of the most highly advanced uh, laboratories for studying ancient DNA of pathogens that exist. And my colleague Johannes Krause is leading that effort and uh, has produced uh, eight, nine new genomes of um, Yersinia pestis from this period. Uh, isn't that interesting? Um, now, at Harvard, I mean, you're, you're an expert in medieval civilizations. That's a very simple summary of all of these things. But would you ever think that you would be hanging out with anthropologists, sociologists, biologists, virologists? All of these people would be part of your history? It certainly wasn't part of my graduate education. I bet. Uh, no, I had a very traditional graduate uh, education. I did my degrees in Belgium at the University of Louvain. I did Greek and Latin philology, ancient manuscripts, inscriptions, ancient coins, and so forth. And then I had the privilege of doing two years at the University of Toronto, uh, doing, doing working on ancient Greek, uh, medieval Greek, Byzantine Greek, and, and other things there. Um, so I was trained in all these things, not in uh, biomolecular in, in uh, molecular biology yeah, or right. in glacial chemical um, science, paleoclimate science or tree rings. Um, and so it's been wonderful being in a place like Harvard, where I have many friends and colleagues in all these areas who can teach me all the things that I don't know, which is gigantic, and which is a wonderful platform to reach out to my colleague, Paul Majewski, who led uh, the Greenland Ice Sheet Project 2 in the 90s and has this amazing laboratory at the Climate Change Institute at the University of Maine, where they've developed new technology that allows us to see extremely compressed ice and detect um, climate events and metal production, metal pollution, and so forth from the heart of the Roman Empire from Switzerland. Um, as we published already in a couple of papers and more forthcoming. So it's been fantastic to be in a place where I can connect with uh, colleagues around the globe and around the United States and Canada and uh, learn from them and share the knowledge and continue to increase the information so that we have an increasingly accurate or a decreasingly inaccurate understanding of the past because now we're getting all kinds of really remarkable new evidence that is changing the the what we can know and the questions we can ask. Well, you're supposed to be bored. You've been doing this for a long time. You're supposed to be bored of your career at this time. Like you get most people that have been doing it for how long you've been doing this for? Well, since I was in grad since I was since I was 17, so a long time, you know. Right? Like Decades. More than let's say more than 50 years. Okay, okay, 50 years in your career. You're supposed to be like, "Man, I'm going to retire." For you though, it's getting more and more exciting all the time because there's more and more information because people will say, "Well, history doesn't rewrite itself." Well, take a while guess what's happening is that <laughs> science is is doing that. Let me ask you this, Michael. The um we talked about knowledge before. Um, you get excited about this part. So I'm really curious, why is it important to you to share this? Because you've talked about, uh, you know, working with colleagues and, and sharing information and partnerships and all that stuff. Why is it so important that we share this knowledge? Why can't it just go in some smart guy book where we don't read it? Why, why is it so important to you that we share this? Two reasons, Shane. One is kind of a general, kind of a moralistic or an ethical reason, and that is that I've been privileged to learn all these things. And it would be a crying shame for me to have learned all these things from all these generous minds and to not share them. Um, in a time when our civilization's wisdom of decision-making in democratic societies depends on our citizens understanding the tremendous knowledge we have and understanding the limits of the knowledge we have. 
So that's kind of a, a, a general ethical principle, I think, that all educators probably share in some way and to some degree. The other one is personal. I come from a small town just across the border from Canada at the western end of the Erie Canal by the name of Tonawanda, which is in the middle of the Rust Belt. And were it not for education, I don't even want to imagine what my future would have been. All the mills closed while I was there, and it ended. Mm -hmm. A little city of 20,000, no more employment. Um, there are still wonderful people there. <laughs> There's not a lot of jobs. The Buffalo area is starting to come back, uh, people say, and that's fantastic. But boy, it's been a rough uh, 40 or 50 years. And uh, were it not for education, uh, I would have had very, very few options to my life. So I think it's really important that education is fundamental to social and economic mobility within our civilization and to the functioning of our democracies. Um, those are two big reasons. I love that. That's great. I lived in St. Catharines 20 years ago, oh, uh, just man. across from yeah. from Buffalo. So in my travels, I mean, you got to see very clearly the impact of, uh, of absolutely. some of those. those Let's have a shout out for Hamilton. And, yeah, uh, uh, absolutely. A wonderful, we have a wonderful ancient DNA co colleague there has been doing very important work by the name of Hendrick Poinar. I love Hamilton too. Well, we have a we have one of our broadcast channels is in Hamilton as well. So, um, uh, the this like this is fat. Okay. By the way, we just in twenty minutes recapped fifteen hundred years of history. We missed a thing or two. So we need to bring Michael back and talk about this more because there's just so much more. This kind of excitement about history to me, when we can share this, I, I maybe, maybe I'm saying the same thing you said, Michael. Maybe it's different. The intention, I think, is the same. In today's world, we get so caught up in not caring or, or, you know, not realizing the magic that's around us all the time. Mm. And when we can look at how far we've come, we, we really get to get it. And we did Egyptology last month. And the, the, what's interesting to me is some of these stories, you talk about being dark for 18 months. We learned how in, in the pictographs that they had to just draw a picture of these repeated pictures of the sun rising, the sun setting, uh, right? The sun rising, sun setting to write the stories. Well, if they wanted 18 months of darkness, they would have to write that there was no sunrise, right? So we just learned about all that stuff. And our guest who did that, he said, you know, when we blame the pyramids on aliens, we diminish the amount of humanity and work that went into create all of this civilization. And, mm -hmm. and I really take that from learning from that conversation into this conversation is that when we think that have the last three years been hard? Yes, they've been dreadful for some people. And I'm not comparing anything. I'm just saying that when we realize that we as people have come through these things before, we're going to come through them again. It, we don't, in that particular case, diminish all of the work of the people that are trying to do it. And it's also worth acknowledging that facts are agreements, widely agreed to be accurate, right? Facts change over time, and we have to allow that to happen. And somehow to me in today's world of this headline-based assumptions and selfishness that we run into, this conversation allows people to go, you know what? There's more to be had here. And they can take it wherever they want to take it. If they want to learn about medieval stuff with you, that's great. They want to learn about Egypt, that's great. If they just want to learn about their family name like me, that's great. But to me, that's where this all hits, is it really hits me at home when I go, There, do you realize how many things had to go right mm -hmm. in order for you and I to have this conversation? Absolutely. Just in the last two months, let alone 
from all of this. And that makes me feel pretty darn grateful, Michael. And well, we should. And it's very well put, Shane. Thank you. It's a privilege to have this conversation with you and to share it with your listeners. Will you come back? Promise. This is the Shift Podcast. All right. So Ryan said that I can play Pac-Man on my computer on the browser. I had no idea. I'd take a wild guess what's happening here on the Mail-In Friday. Yes. Thanks for being here. It's time for Steve Stebbing. And what the hell should we watch this weekend? Look, come on. For the amount of people that used to play solitaire on their computers, just a couple of minutes of Pac-Man there. That was fun. It was intense. Hi, Steve. Hey, how's it going? It's good. SteveStebbing.ca. If you want to uh, follow along, we were talking about Pac-Man before we got into the break to speak to what you have coming up and all that cool stuff. So here we are with What the Hell Should We Watch This Weekend? The AV Club documentary style is also on the way. So should we just get right into it, Steve? I want to read a text yes, that sir. gives you a compliment. Ooh, I like those. Right. Movie review from Glennie. I took Steve's recommendations, and I watched Disney release of Prey, the 300-year preview to Predator. I must thank him. I was not disappointed, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. I personally felt that yes. it's the best one in the franchise. Another exclamation yeah, mark. Yeah, I, I can agree with that. I, I mean, I have a soft spot for the original, but as far as movie substance goes i i think prey has a good lock on it and amber midthunder's performance in it is just chef's kiss you know yeah that's the one <laughs> first on steve's lift this week also on his blogs and he does it's uh steve stepping.ca day shift he's a new man one last chance this is your final warning this kid crying oh no <laughs> Vampires just tried to kill me. Now I just pissed my favorite. Hey, 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 everybody pisses themselves the first time. Really? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Action, horror, comedy. Uh, Jamie Foxx seems to have signed, I guess, a deal with Netflix. He did Project Power a couple of years ago, which isn't a bad movie, entertaining, a little bit dumb. That's the same kind of gear that we're in for Day Shift, uh, which is uh, like great chemistry between Jamie Foxx and his co-star Dave Franco in this. Um, but the movie feels like it was written by like a high schooler and it didn't evolve the script beyond that. Like they just were like, this is so cool. And they didn't think of good dialogue or, or anything like that. They just got substance and, and that's that's about it. Um, but it's directed by a st- stunt coordinator for the John Wick movies. So the fight scenes are really cool. And the CG is actually pretty neat looking. But uh, yeah, it's a turn your brain off and just press play type of thing. All right. What the hell should we watch this weekend? I feel like it's got like a Spicoli moment. Like, and then you won't believe what happens next. Mm-hmm. They open up the mm-hmm. van and they've hotboxed the van and then they all get out of the van. Cool, right? <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh, next on the list here with Steve Stebbing is fall. Come here. It's coming up on a year. I have something that's planned and I need a partner in crime. The B67 TV tower. I haven't climbed since. Becky, if you don't confront your fears, you are always going to be afraid. Let's do it. 
Let's climb your stupid tower. Okay. Does it end with gravity doing something that gravity should or shouldn't do? Question mark. Uh, no, gravity is pretty much doing what it's supposed to to do in this movie, but it's just kind of everything around it, the situation, how they get there, all this kind of stuff that there's that's where the implausibilities go. And it's it's sad because this movie literally had me in the palm of his hand because like one of my big fears is fear of heights. So the fact that they're they do the height stuff really, really well, but it's just everything else that they don't do well. And uh, even like kind of like the, the reveals in the ending and stuff I, I had I took serious issue with um, and the script. Why can't people write a good script for these ones? Um, but, you know, it's it's kind of one of those those thrill survival thrillers. Um, and it is what it is. Like you look at the trailer. That's what you're getting. <laughs> Feeling the love here so far. <laughs> uh, which, by the way, uh, as I've shared with Ryan many times, you're not afraid of heights. You're afraid of gravity. There we go. Physics. Okay. <laughs> it's not, is it okay. called gravitophobia? <laughs> yeah, it could be, right? Um, next on the list is Sonic the Hedgehog 2. What's happening? <laughs> okay, quick version. Robotnik is back. I discovered the source of ultimate power. We need to get it back or the world is doomed. You brought some kind of space porcupine. Oh, we talked about Pac-Man. Ryan talked about Sonic a little earlier as a, an example mm -hmm. of how the first one was done right. How is this one? You know, and this one's been out a few weeks on Paramount Plus, but you can now get it on uh, Blu-ray and 4K. And yeah, these movies are way better than they had any business being. And the second movie picks up really well off of the first movie and just adds so much more, like bringing new characters in, uh, setting up more, because we do have a third movie that's coming in uh, Christmas 2024 now. And I honestly say that some of the best work of Jim Carrey's career are in these two movies. They're so much really? fun. Yeah. So I love fun. these movies. I really do. Uh, yeah. I, I've never, I was never a thing. So for me, it's a brand new level of discovery to, for the whole character. Cause I didn't mm -hmm. catch that video game era. Wasn't part of my era. Right. Mm -hmm. Cool stuff. It's neat when they bring them to life. I do like that. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Next on the list with Steve Stebbing is, is it Nitrum or Nitrum? Nitrum. I'm guessing. Nitrum. Nitrum, here we go. Sometimes I watch myself. Hey, Dad. Hey, man. But I don't know who it is that I'm looking at. Do you walk dogs? Yeah, I do. <laughs> Maybe you could walk my babies for me. If I could just change it, but I don't know how. The actors get you in this one. Yeah, absolutely. This is and this is based on a true story, uh, but it follows the main character played by Caleb Landry Jones, Nitram, who's a dude that is a, a bubbling pot of unstable feelings and mental psychosis and everything. And this is a deep character drama of him building up to uh, a, a, just an explosion that you never actually get to see in the movie because this really is a true story it takes place in tasmania where there was a massacre 
uh, in the mid nineties at the hands of an unstable man named Martin Bryant. Uh, and if you look at the title of this one, it is Martin backwards. Um, so they're, they're telling this man's story without glorifying him with his name and everything. They're kind of doing like one of those kind of serial killer portraits, but, uh, so well done. Also, uh, Judy Davis is in this. I mean, she's an actress that has been in incredible films for decades and decades. And then it's kind of long, kind of been dormant for the last day, uh, decade and a half or so fantastic in this movie. I really enjoyed it. All right, there you go. SteveStebbing.ca, a good one to check out. Nitrum, Martin backwards. Event Horizon, next on the list, 4K restoration. Event Horizon is the culmination of a secret government project to create a spacecraft capable of faster-than-light flight. The ship doesn't really go faster than light. What it does is it creates a dimensional gateway that allows it to jump instantaneously from one point of the universe to another light years away. Where has she been for the last seven years, Doctor? All right, tell me about it. Yeah, quite possibly the greatest sci-fi horror of all time, uh, released in the mid-90s from Paul W.S. Anderson, who's really known for the Resident Evil movies. This is his crowning achievement, though. Basically about a uh, ship that goes through a black hole and re-emerges, and then a team is sent to investigate the ship. And it's like HP Lovecraft on a spaceship. It is just, it's it's hell in space. And uh, I mean, a killer cast, Lawrence Fishburne, Kathleen Quinlan, and one of Sam Neill's greatest performances. This movie rocks. And to have it on 4K, and I got the Steelbook, which is uh, like a nerd out, beautiful thing to have as a collector. Um, Yeah, I'm all about it. What the Hell Should We Watch This Weekend is a list of movies, TV shows, all of these things that movie expert, TV expert uh, Steve Stebbing puts together for us. Most of them available, whether they're on DVD or streaming services, you name it. And uh, just a little bit of a look of some ideas of something that just might fit for you. I like this character. He's pretty cool. I liked it when he was just a wee tree. I am Groot. I am Groot. I am Groot. Um. Baby Groot was the best. And that's exactly what this series is. It's all, every episode is Baby Groot. Like, that's the time period that they're focusing on for this. And each episode is about five, six minutes. You can complete the entire series in about 20 minutes. And it's so much fun. It's cute. It doesn't really have any kind of bearing on the MCU MCU beyond what you're seeing. Uh, And it's just, a nice little fluff with the character that I, how can you hate this character? I, I mm-hmm. haven't come across somebody yet. That's like, I hate Groot because mm-hmm. you just can't. I don't think it's physically possible. <laughs> well, he's pretty cute. This is the shift podcast. We've got a full, uh, what would you call it? Uh, oh, I had the word, uh, uh, dugout. Come on, brain. Don't fail me now. We've got a full dugout here on the shift. Ryan O'Donnell, Bruce Claggett. I'm Shane Hewitt. Jonathan Chung's in Vancouver as well. It is time for Are You Okay With? Are you? Are you? Are you? Okay. 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 Are you okay with? 
877-399-9898. This is a series of stories, wild, silly, scary, all of those things. We want to know your thoughts. Let us know if you are okay with CEOs. In like, yeah, like they pay. Yeah, I think uh, a good CEO can uh, make or break a company, right? I think it's really interesting. A lot of job sites now uh, have a category above, and it's like a percentage. This many people approve of the CEO's performance, and that might turn people away from certain jobs. So, like, it's not just mm-hmm. the person who, like, they, yeah, they run the company, but Stops. if they're doing a good job or a bad job, it, it influences so much, which is yeah. like kind of scary, but also it is like, scary. Else you gonna have a CEO it, can quit a company, by the way, and totally change the stock value. Oh yeah. So, yeah, that's a big thing. CEOs, Bruce. Well, I think the whole C-suite is important. CEOs can uh, definitely bring a whole new tone to a company. I've uh, worked uh, in a well, rather large, uh, not this one, rather large uh, media company with a great CEO uh, who I got to know quite well, and um, really a personable uh, feeling from uh from that uh ceo that trickled all the way down through the company um i think it's important to set a tone with the ceo and a direction but uh, also who they have as uh their other c-suite members from the marketing to the financial officers and chief technology officers i think they're all important mm-hmm. also because they pay so i appreciate them they do all the money things they do the smart people stuff if you work for a big company you probably have a ceo small businesses might not have a ceo just a president stuff like that but it's a big title big responsibility comes with that title uh ceos are the ones who are getting up right now to go to work to be there before all of the staff does you know what i don't like though is somebody that works for a small company like themselves one person operation that calls themselves a ceo uh, you're not that. a CEO. I think great. Yeah. I think it's great. You be really? whoever you want to be. You own it. You be whoever you want oh, to be. Okay. That's, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So one of the hardest parts about being the boss, of course, is making the hard decisions that come with being the boss. That can be, sorry, Bob, we can't do that project anymore, right? Sorry, Bob, you can't go to that trade show. Uh, all the hard things that come along, including positions and layoffs. There's a CEO who posted a selfie of himself right after he laid off some workers. The selfie, showing him drenched in tears, he looks visibly upset, has garnered some mixed reactions. His name is Brandon Wallach, and he posted this selfie that you're looking at right there of himself crying after he had to lay off some of his workers. He uh, accompanied that with uh, a, a note saying that this is, quote, the most vulnerable thing I'll ever share. And he even blamed himself and his own decision making, not the economy, for making the layoffs. He didn't elaborate on what decisions he made that caused this, but he said it was all about him. Okay, so that's all interesting. But then, of course, the social media reaction started. Some people were very sympathetic. They said, yeah, this is a very hard thing for anyone to have to do, and we feel your pain, and that's valid. Others said, dude, you know, that's a bit much. This is part of your job, and moreover, you're making this about yourself and not all the people who have just lost their jobs, who undoubtedly are probably crying as well. He followed that up with an apology for saying that he was presenting himself as the victim here. He said he didn't want to do that. 
All right, so that's from KTLA five, by the way, uh, which is interesting. He, Mister uh, Wally, compared his employees to members of his family. He said, "I can't think of a lower moment than this." In his conclusion, and we don't see the bosses what they uh, toil over in the, some of these decisions. I have some friends who work uh, mega high levels inside companies, and when they make decisions. Sometimes they come from even above that, shareholders, whatever, board members, and they get, you know, not misunderstood. You can't really always share this. So it's curious to me how he did this. Now, the post, as of the writing, has been linked over 32,000 times, 6,600 comments. LinkedIn users are divided whether this is admirable or cringy. Uh, kind of looking for sympathy. The company, Hypersocial, specializes in LinkedIn marketing, business-to-business client outreach strategy. Bloomberg reported that the company has 15 employees, two fewer than before the layoffs. Still, uh, it kind of uh, stinks, I guess, for everybody. That's tough, man. Nobody likes to lose their job. And, and trust me, the bosses don't like cutting you loose at all. No. Unless you're a jerk. <laughs> but then you're not getting laid yeah. off. You feel you so, yeah. Anyway, take okay. it away, Bruce. This one, are you okay with? Are you okay with the new Coke? Yes, indeed. Coke has a new flavor, and they've had these over the years. But the new Coke, the new new Coke, is the most controversial one. Why you say? It was so controversial, they had to make an ad to kind of explain it, like this one. I'm Don Keogh, president of the Coca-Cola Company. When we brought you the new taste of Coke, we knew that millions would prefer it, and millions do. And we knew that it would beat the taste of our major competitor, and it does. What we didn't know was how many thousands of you would phone and write, asking us to bring back the classic taste of original Coca-Cola. Well, we read, and we listened, and you know the rest. They're both yours. The new taste of Coke and Coca-Cola Classic. Your right of choice is back. Okay, well, that was an old ad, but it kind of is a reminder of what can happen when things go a little bit south on you. And is that about to happen this time? Because this one is just downright weird. Coke has a brand new flavor coming out next week. Don't worry, it's not replacing old Coke. You'll still have that available. But that's probably the best because the flavor is called Dream World. Well, Coke has announced a new flavor it says is inspired by, quote, the playfulness and brightness of dreams. It's called Dream World. Cans and bottles come with QR codes for online games and music. A limited run of the new Dream-inspired Coke hits store shelves on August 15th. Okay, that's just weird. Um, Dream world or getting into, how do you capture a flavor like that? You know, I I just, it it makes absolutely no sense to me. Ryan, go. I mean, like, they're clearly marketing this towards millennials and Gen Z. That's what Mm -hmm. this is for. You want to be heard. This this aesthetic is called Vaporwave. This is a, a thing that my generation started. It's essentially you take this weird fascination with the early 2000s internet, all the bright colors and all that, and then uh, slow down music and make it all flashy. And it, it's this is Coke trying to hop on that trend. But the thing is, Vaporwave and, and this aesthetic is music so uh, and nostalgia. So what I'm guessing is that this is going to be Coke 
with a hint of several other older flavors that probably kids grew up with. So maybe like a little bit of cherry Coke and like some vanilla. And it's, they're going to try to go for nostalgia because that's what code word for a dream is. And I think it's really stupid. I think it's just like very pandering, but the thing that stops me from thinking this is a horrible thing is the fact that it's just like a limited run. This is like, Hey, we're trying it out for like three months. It's going to be gone. You know, it's something different. That's fine. That's like when McDonald's tried like waffle fries for, you know, a month and then they went away. I'm okay with that. But the idea of the flavor and how they're pandering, it's, I'm going to have to try it. So congrats. (laughs) They figured it out. (laughs) Okay. Shane. I think it's a fantastic idea. I mean, it's just hippy dippy marketing about hippy dippy things. I don't like new flavors and all this messing with flavors thing. I would, I mean, I'm clearly not a Coca-Cola level marketing expert. I just think that every time you mess with the original core of the brand, it compromises the brand. Although, you know, the original classic Coca-Cola, they've learned that lesson in the past. So is it going to be one of those things that, that, that they do? Or is it so important that they, they push forward? I don't know about you, but I don't ever see Pepsi doing these kinds of things. Mountain Dew has done uh, it, but you don't see sometimes. Pepsi coming up with hippy-dippy flavors, do you? No. They, they always do the throwback. They do Crystal Pepsi and Pepsi throwback where they use the actual cane sugar, but they don't usually do weird out-of-the-box, like pandering kind of crystal flavors. pepsi wasn't that that one that was absolutely clear is that still around clear, clear. Yeah. yeah they make it once a summer usually i think it's uh it might be gone now i saw it earlier this year never tried it but that uh, crystal pepsi uh, plays into this aesthetic as well uh yeah june 29th it came back this year june 29th oh okay yeah Here's another one. We heard about uh, a series of thunderstorms going right from Alberta, going west, all the way into the Okanagan of uh, BC. Are you okay with thunderstorms? I love them. Yeah. Fascinating. I love them. Have I, did, I, do you want to know how I learned to be okay with thunderstorms? How's that, Brian? My mom would grab my brother and I and put us on the front porch during a massive thunderstorm and force us to watch. Just listen. Look, it's loud. It's kind of scary. But hey, it's fine. You're safe and all that. It worked on me. I love thunderstorms. Hearing the thunder, you know, it's like, ooh, that was a big one. You get to watch it and the clouds. My brother, not so much. My brother hides under the bed. So 50-50, my mom's plan. So, I mean, it's it, it, in theory, it kind of worked. But yeah, I'm all for the thunder. Shane. You're all for thunder, too. It's fascinating. It's the power of Mother Nature. I love it when the the lightning hits hard and rattles the walls. And I mean, in Alberta, we get hit hard, right? I mean, it is is fast. It is wicked. I know Manitoba is very similar with the storms. When they come off the mountains here in Alberta and they just, I mean, you watch those thunderhead clouds, they skyrocket. My favorite part of when I took my pilot's license was, I didn't finish it, by the way. I got kids, but what I was doing, it was the weather. The weather study is the most unbelievably powerful, amazing of all the things. So, you know, as long as everyone's okay out of it, then yeah, I love it. Yeah, myself, I, uh, this is peeling back the layers of the onion known as Bruce Claggett, but I'm a real weather nerd. So much so that I've got my own weather station uh, set up in the backyard with all the readouts and the graphs and stuff like that. And it's got a lightning oh. detector, but it never 
really goes off uh, too much uh, because we don't get uh, lightning in uh, in the Vancouver area as much as anywhere else in the country. But uh, a good thunderstorm, I love, absolutely love the power of nature and a little bit jealous because my wife and uh, my son have headed up to the Okanagan and apparently they're sending little text messages uh, to me. Uh, there's a thunderstorm system that went right through and Kamloops had a big thunderstorm in the last couple hours. And I'm thinking, oh man, get past the fire danger and nobody likes that. But you know, the chance to see that sort of magic in the air, that's just incredible. Love it. Okay, the next one. Are you okay with this one? Lawsuits. I've never been a part of one, thankfully. I don't really, I really hope I never have to be because it seems like a lot of work that unless you get like a boatload of money, it's not, I just, I don't know. It's just, I love law, law shows. I started Better Call Saul, the Breaking Bad prequel spinoff incredible love it um but it's too much information like the codes and the individual law keep i'll watch the drama from afar let the inner drama kid come out and just watch that but keep me out of it please okay well let's take this to the next level and stay with that keep you out of it type idea what about those out of court settlements you know you're you're going to sue somebody you've gone all the way uh, into making the threat real and then you sit down and you never hear about what happens because there's always that non-disclosure agreement. Uh, Is that okay? Gonna, that's not, I've had to sign non-disclosure agreements before. And but legal even, ones coming out of a lawsuit. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've had to sign yep. full legal, proper non-disclosure agreements. And I yeah, felt I like, am I okay with this? Am I actually okay signing this? Eh, whatever. Yeah. Uh, so You have to sign them when you get yeah. books from another company when you're looking to buy them yeah, yeah. that's a, it's a little sketchy yeah. you know sometimes i can go fine but it's a little sketchy yeah. okay no, i mean lawsuits they're 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 necessary um i don't i don't think that i struggle with law in general not the, the, the law but the lawyers because the lawyers have basically created their own sustainability by having their own language and all of this we we literally cannot function in law without a lawyer to translate all of the things and yeah. i think that's done on purpose I think that some of the lawyers I've spoken to will say, well, yeah, that's how we keep working. So it's wildly expensive. And you never really know. The thing about it is when you order a cheeseburger, right, you can afford it and ask for a refund. Like if you don't like it, whatever. But with a lawyer, you can never say, by the way, you're terrible. Can I have my money back? That's just not something that you can do. No, you don't get the refund on that. And they are extremely expensive. Suing someone can be a pricey endeavor, and but... Not everyone, uh, every lawsuit ends with even a payout. A Crown prosecutor in Alberta won't have to worry about paying out a $900 trillion lawsuit claimed by a very angry man. You see, Mr. Raven Wolf sued the court over an alleged mistrial and bullying in the courtroom. And it gets even better. The province won't have to find $900 trillion and enforce a restraining order to forever keep the government worker 200 meters away from the same man, nor will his landlord face the demands for $900 trillion and a court order to, you know, get him, as he put it, the bad word out of my face. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> That's that? a lot of money. That's like 
Nine hundred trillion dollars. Have have we even hit? Like, how much money does the entire world make in in one year? Like, if you combine every GDP together, I don't think we would come even close to that fact. I don't know. Well, maybe, but I mean, still, it's it's, you know, if you're gonna go big, you might as well go big. I guess <laughs> that's that what is I that. say. Right. If you're going for money, go big on the money. How angry am I? I'm nine hundred trillion dollars angry. That's how much I want. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot. There you go. I can't help myself though. Yeah. Well. Final one. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Yes, indeed. Are you okay with roommates? Music. Okay. Have you had a roommate? I mean, how do you even know if you're okay unless you've uh, gone down that path? My roommate right. has the worst bad breath. <laughs> oh yeah, Ryan. Yeah, I've got a yeah, I've got I've got a roommate. I've, I'm, I'm uh, I have a great. He's my best friend. It's good. He's so been far. gone for like three weeks. Yeah, well, it's we're coming up on almost a year, and the yeah, there's I don't want to say tension, but just like it's nice to have the privacy. I've I've been have had the place to myself for three weeks, and a hundred percent. My next place, I'm either by myself or I'm with my partner, Laura. No more roommates after 100%. No, you're it's done. Nice. You're Can I put you on yeah, the spot? I'm going to put sure. you on the spot with this. Sure. How's your partner, Laura, with a roommate? It hasn't had it. Lived with the parents the whole time. No, how is she with your roommate? Oh, with oh with my roommate? Oh, we're pretty good. Yeah, good. Yep. Pretty good. Yeah. My uh, my my Except. best friend he takes takes he's a little I don't want to say abrasive but you know he's like uh, <laughs> uh, he uh, it took us a while to become friends so it takes a while you know it's just it's just the way it goes he's that kind of guy but I would I would die for him right so we're getting to that point but uh, for Laura yeah it's good it's fine Shane I don't my roommates is great Dane <laughs> and my kids so uh, my kids and uh, so I tell them what to do. Uh, which is great in the roommate relationship is when you can tell your roommates what to do and what time they have to be home and to clean up the kitchen. And uh, then the big black dog is she's just got terrible breath. So aside from that, um, my roommate Sitch has has been pretty good for a long time. You know what? I've been uh, lucky. I've never had a roommate. Had people stay far too long and uh, say, you know, I'll drop in. Uh, Are you around? Uh, I'm coming to Vancouver. Can I stay with you for a week, which ends up turning into three? But um, a roommate? No, I've been lucky. I've uh, paid way too much in rent uh, at times because I wouldn't go for a roommate. But uh, I, I need my own space for that, for living. I like people, but need my own space, and I'll pay the extra money for that. Ah, roommates. You guys are great. When we come back, amazing noise guy. I'm Bruce Claggett. I'll be in all next week for Shane Hewitt. Uh, They're trying me out tonight. You know, I'm just uh, learning a few things here and there. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 